Welcome, welcome, welcome to faith this morning. It's been a good time in worship. I've enjoyed just, uh, just being in the sanctuary and the congregation sitting in the pews and just, just being in God's presence. It's always a delight to do that. And um, we're in August, we're in a, a preaching series on, uh, we always sort of focus on a few things. And this, this month we're focusing on, on one chapter of scripture, John chapter 15. John chapter 15, abiding in the vine, Jesus said. Jesus says that he is the vine, the Father is, is, is the vine dresser, and we're to abide in him, we're the branches. And today is the third of the four sermons on, on this great chapter, John chapter 15. And my title is Identity Crisis, Identity Crisis. Those who believe in the good news about Jesus should get an essential identity from that newfound relationship with Jesus. It's from being in union with him. This whole series is about abiding in him, being in union with him, being connected to Jesus, abiding in him. And uh, today's passage is no different. We're going to look at verses 12 to 17. ESV translation, it's on the overhead to your right. Let's listen to God's word. <clears throat> Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Amen. God, God's word. Identity crisis. My name is Stan Long. Have you ever researched your name? Stan Long. You know, there's a couple Stan Longs in the world. There's a lot of Stan Longs in the world. There's, a, there's an old hockey player uh, who was in the Stanley Cup, actually, once. He, he, he's now deceased, I believe. Uh, his name is Stan Long. He was uh, in, from Ontario. He played for the Montreal Canadiens and for some other teams. He's now deceased. I'm not him. You got it, okay. There's an old dealership, car dealership in Michigan. The guy's name was Stan Long. He had a classic Pontiac uh, from the 60s. It's still running around with my name on it, Stan Long Pontiac. I don't know if the guy still exists or not. I don't know, but I'm not him. I don't know if he's, he may be dead. I don't know. Then there's a guy, there's a pastor Stan Long, who used to serve when he was young with Tom Skinner Associates. His name is Stan Long, he, and I've met him at a conference years ago. He's a pastor. We, we, me, he, my dad and I, we, we met him at a conference. We compared notes. His name is Stanley B. Long. He's in California now. He's been a pastor. He's a retired pastor. He served the Lord for 50 years. Bible-believing pastor of Bay Community Church, Bay Area Community Church. Um, I'm not him either, and I'm not connected. To, I'm not related to him. We've compared notes. I know who I am. Uh, and all, each of us has a unique identity, don't we? Each of us is very unique. You know, I, as you can tell, I'm an African-American. I'm a male. That, that, that shows up as soon as I walk into a room. Um, that's who I am. That's unique. Th that, that's not unique. There are many African-American males, but I have unique uh, relationships, a unique family. I have a wife. I have kids. Um, I have a, a mother, and my father has passed away. Um, I have siblings. I have particular interests. I like music. I like sports. I like history. I have, I have a particular temperament and personality. I have, I have a, 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 unfortunately, a, a, a particular body type. Amen? 
particular specific aspirations and dreams and desires and, and preferences. And I'm not unique because all of us uniquely have a uniqueness, don't we? David said in Psalm 139, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. God knows us each personally. He created us personally, and we're all unique in, in, in how he, we have developed in our history and our, our traditions and in our, in our personalities. And, 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 and we, we sing that song often by Israel Holden, I know who I am. And I love that song because I like the next part of it. I am yours. I am yours, and you are mine. You know, the most important part of our identity the most important aspect of our identity is that we belong to him. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, that's who you are. And that overwhelms everything. Everything, everything else about you is the fact that you're connected to Jesus Christ. You are his and he is yours. And you're abiding in the vine. If by faith you've trusted in him, you have a personal relationship with the Lord and King of the universe the Lord Jesus Christ. And we often talk about uh, uh, Christianity as a personal relationship with God, and it really is. But let me just twist a little bit. We have a positive personal relationship with God, a harmonious personal relationship with God. Because you know what? God has a personal relationship with everyone. Sometimes there's not harmony there. Amen? Sometimes there's dysfunction there. Sometimes we are not uh, uh, in right with God. In fact, the Scriptures teach us 1 Corinthians 15, 22. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There are some who are still in Adam, as all of us were born in Adam, and others through Christ have been made alive. And that's the core of our identity. But until you come to Christ, you have a crisis in your identity. You're heading towards an eternity apart from God. The good news is that through the believing in the message of the gospel, you're in Christ. You have life. You know who you are. You're his. And he is yours. And this passage is going to show us, we begin to talk about the responsibilities of discipleship. And, and the responsibilities of discipleship that we see in this passage and all through the New Testament, they flow from our identity. They flow from our identity. We're going to see that in this passage. We talk in our, in our mission and vision about we want to be grace-filled disciples of Jesus Christ. Disciples who are filled with grace. We want, we want our discipleship, our following of God, to flow from the relationship that we have to Jesus Christ and the identity that, that has happened because we've been changed by him. That's what it's all about. Our hearts have been changed. Our identity has been changed by Christ. And that should be our motivation. Now, in this chapter, there's really three sections that I said last week. The, the, the first part is the believer's relationship um, to Jesus. The second, which we're in now, is a believer's relationship to one another. That's really where he is in the second section of this chapter. And then the, the, the third section, which is next week, is the believer's relationship to the world around us. The disciples as they relate to the world around us. So the focus here is not just on the things that he's called us to do, which is to serve him and to bear fruit and to pray and ask the Father things, but, but more on the changed identity that we have in Christ which moves us to do those things. He's changed us in several ways. We are now friends of God, verse 14. We are, we're chosen by God, verse 16. And we're children of God, also in verse 16. First, we're, we, we, we can sacrificially love others. We can love one another because we are friends of God. We've just, we've, this, we've worshiped, we've, we've focused on this, this idea of being friends of God. We sang this song, and I hopefully 
that song moves you as it often still moves me. We are friends of God. He calls us friends. Look at the passage, verse uh, uh, 13. Greater love is no man than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus says to them on that, on the, in the upper room, on the day before he died, you are my friends if you do what I command you. He says, I have called you friends. I don't call you servants. And you're now my friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. We were previously enemies of God. Steve shared that in worship. Just Romans chapter 5, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Romans chapter 5 it says that very clearly. We were sinners, we were ungodly, we were enemies of God, and we have been reconciled to him. Now there is a harmonious relationship because of what Christ has done. Incredible thought. We never get beyond that. Christ on the cross laid down his life, not just for his friends, for his enemies, to make them friends. Do you get it? To turn enemies into friends, he died on the cross. That's why we celebrate the reconciling work of Jesus Christ for us every week. That's what worship's all about. Christ died on the cross to bring us back to the God who created us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We were enemies, but now we're reconciled. Now we are friends. Now we have a harmonious relationship with God. And Jesus says that they were no longer just servants. They are servants. They understand who he is. He's the, he's the, 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 the king who's come. They are servants, but they're more than servants. They're now his friends. The more you read his word and understand his heart and are transformed by him, the more you'll appreciate and sense the friendship that he has with you. He wants you to know him and to know his heart. In Exodus chapter 33, in the Old Testament, there were two people who were kind of called friends of God. Here's one, Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. It says, uh, Mo, uh, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. Face to face. That's a literal face to face, but it's, a, it's an idiom. It's talking about the special intimacy that God had with Moses. The unique personal conversations he had. And then we heard in worship uh, 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 Isaiah 41, Abraham, my friend, from Isaiah, the prophet, later down the road. God shared unique things with Abraham. Have you ever noticed that? Abraham was a man of faith. He walked by faith. He left his own home country. The, the, most, the, the most powerful incident in his life, to me, is in chapter 22, when he takes his son, Isaac, to Mount Moriah. You remember that? He, he takes him to the mountain. Uh, 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 he wakes up early, doesn't tell his wife. He gets up early. Um, to, to sacrifice, to worship, which means sacrifice. And Isaac is there, and Isaac is, it looks like Isaac's going to be the sacrifice. Isaac complies, and, I, and so the, he's on the altar. Moses has the knife. He's about to put the knife into his son. And you look, that was not strange in that day. Child sacrifice was very normal. All the nations around, the other gods, they did that. So Yahweh, the God of Israel, maybe that's the kind of God he was. Well, you just take your firstborn and you sacrifice him to appease the gods. He raised, so in his anguish and his frustration that you God, just like the other gods, but he obeys God, he raises the knife, and then the angel says, stop, stop, Moses. Uh, excuse me, Abraham. Stop, Abraham. I, now I know. And here, here's what happened in that, in that incident. God took Abraham to the place where he began to not just, he began to feel and appreciate what it's like to lose your only beloved son, your beloved son. 
he entered into some of the feelings and emotions of God. And that's why Isaiah can call him Abraham's God's friend. Because God, God, there, was, there was intimate communication of some interesting things that Abraham experienced. And Jesus is doing the same thing with his disciples. He's, he's letting them in on some secrets. He's letting them in on the fact the whole world doesn't know that even on that night when, when animals are being sacrificed on Passover night, that he, the next day, would be the Passover sacrifice for us. He would be the Lamb of God. He's letting him in on secrets. They're experiencing, beginning to experience and understand what is going on. You're no longer a servant. You're my friend. A servant serves under you in the hierarchy, but a friend serves beside you. And Jesus invites us to his side. That's the incredible thing here, folks. We invite to come to his side and, and, and be partners with him. In the book of Hebrews, in fact, he calls us brothers. Amazing fact. It's astounding. <laughs> Jesus has for three years convinced the apostles that he is the king, the son of man, the Messiah. And we recognize from our own political world that to think you can, without permission, rush into the presence of one with authority can get you in a lot of trouble. We've seen that in our political world when you try to approach a couple of incidents. One was in, in 2009, Michelle and Tariq Salahi. Sahlahi. There are a couple from Virginia who made their way into a presidential dinner at the White House for the, the guests from India, the Prime Minister of India. Uh, they were not invited, but somehow they got through the security and they got on the, the, the guest list and they met the president. And then they posted on Facebook, hey, guess what? Here we are. And security didn't like that. They were brought in for questions. They, 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 they somehow gained access to the highest position in, the, in, in our country. Maybe, maybe a few weeks ago you saw an interesting incident on, in, 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 in Manhattan. The Trump Towers, it was a few weeks ago. A, a, a man who's a 20-year-old man from Virginia, um, he used suction cups to climb up, up Trump Towers. It's a 58-story building. He got to about the 20th, 21st floor. He was apprehended by the police. And um, I guess he thought he was a friend of Donald. I don't know. Thought he, could, he thought he wanted to have a conversation with, I guess a lot of people want to have a conversation with Donald Trump, I don't know. But um, here's what he said to the, this report of the, the, the officials. He said, I am an independent researcher seeking an audience with you, Donald, to, to discuss an important matter. I guarantee that it's in your heart, in your interest to honor this request, he said in his video. Believe me, if my purpose was not significant, I would not risk my life pursuing it. The reason I climbed your tower is to get your attention. If I had sought this via conventional means, I would be much less likely to have success because you were a busy man with many responsibilities. So somehow he wanted to say some things to Donald Trump, and to gain access, he's going to climb up the building, climb up the, the side of, of the Trump Towers. I don't know if he ever had the conversations with, with Donald Trump or not, but his problem was that he thought he was a friend of Donald. He's not. <laughs> he's, an, he's, he's, a, he's a danger. He's an interloper. Couldn't get on Donald Trump's schedule. People sometimes do crazy things, amazing things, to try to gain access that a friend would always have, would normally have. Think about it. We're called to, to, to imitate the Lord by sacrificially loving one another. This passage is framed by love. Loving one another, verse 12, verse 17. Love one another. Jesus had already modeled that for them. We saw, talked last week about uh, John 13. He washed their feet that same evening. 
he says here something later in, in chapter 13, uh, something that probably startled them a little bit. He said in John 13, 34 to 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, that's the part he might have been startling. They'll know you're my disciples by how you love one another. Think about that. Remember in the 70s, we used to have, in college, we used to have this song, they'll know we are Christians by our love. It's kind of a hokey song. I won't, I won't sing it for you. But it's true. That's what Jesus is saying. The love we have for each other speaks loudly. Now Francis Schaeffer, um, a great apologist, um, speaks to that, spoke to that. We'll see that in a second. William Hendrickson said, Jesus is not satisfied with a merely servile obedience. That's the point. He doesn't just want obedience. He wants obedience that flows from who we are and the transformation that's taking place in our lives. And the love that we have for each other should flow from the love that he has for us. It's a sacrificial love, a sacrificial love. Um, we've seen dramatic pictures the last few weeks of, of flooding in, in Louisiana. Have you seen those pictures? Have you seen those, those videos? It's, it's amazing what has gone on. Um, the people in the South need our prayers, need our help. Our denomination is doing things to, to, to give relief efforts. Uh, there's some incredible, incredible courageous uh, stories of, of people who are who just helping other people who are desperate. And you know, uh, heroes do that. Heroes run towards the danger and towards the issues and rather than running away from the issues. And there are many heroes. I heard an interview of a man who said, who was in a boat, he said, me and my friend, we've rescued almost 200 people, 200 families. Just, you know, trying to help. Trying to help neighbor, helping neighbor. Wonderful thing. Um, heroes often act in a, in a crisis moment. Something happens and, they, and they, call, they go to action. And they just do it. It's an instinct. It's a good instinct for heroes. And I was thinking about that in terms of, of what Jesus has done, uh, what he's doing here in this passage as he's telling them that, that, that he's going to sacrifice, he's going to lay down his life for them. You know, that was not an instantaneous, uh, spontaneous thing. He did it with, with great forethought, with great pre-thought, before the foundations of the world. We, the theologians call it the, the, the covenant of redemption. The father and the son had a conversation, and the son said, I will go. I will go on the rescue mission. I will go to save people because they can't save themselves. And so throughout time, the Old Testament was being prepared, and then in the fullness of time, he came, and he lived. He came on a mission, and he died willingly, sacrificially, with much forethought. He left heaven on a mission. That's the ultimate sacrificial love, the love of Christ. So this, this, this sacrificial love, this, this, this love is, is, is the ultimate sign of authentic discipleship. And that's what Francis Schaeffer, the great and late theologian, talked about in his little book, The Mark of a Christian based on John 13, 34 and 35. He says this, here's a quote. The observable and practical love among true Christians that the world has a right to be able to observe in our day certainly should cut without reservation across such lines as language, nationalities, national frontiers, younger and older, colors of skin, levels of education, economics, accent, line of birth, the class system in any particular locality, dress, short or long hair among whites and Africans and non-African hair dudes among blacks, the wearing of shoes, the non-wearing of shoes, cultural differentiation, and, and the more traditional and less traditional forms of worship. 
He's saying the body of Christ is open to all. That's what he's saying. And the practical love that, we, that, that God has for all people, we need to have for each other. And then he says, if the world does not, does not see this, it will not believe that Christ was sent by the Father. That's what John 13, 34, and 35 is saying, you see. The world must have the proper answers to their honest questions, yes. But at the same time, there must be a oneness in love between all true Christians. This is what is needed if, if men are to know that Jesus was sent by the Father and that Christianity is true. Love means saying hard things, being sensitive, be, believing in the other person. Love means forbearing one another. 1 Corinthians 13 describes love, depicts love. I've been noticing a national anxiety over the last few, few years, and, and one sign of it is, the, is, is a lot of the internet quarreling and squabbling that we see. No, nobody gives anyone the benefit of the doubt about anything anymore. Have you noticed that? Everyone is looking for a purpose, a reason to rant about something. There's a lot of cultural in, uh, uh, hypersensitivity going on. Let me urge you all in your conversations, whether it's face-to-face -face or, or, or online conversations, speak the truth, but speak the truth in love, the scriptures tell us. Speak lovingly to win the argument and to win the friend, not just to win the argument. I'm becoming very, very concerned about the increased ranting that I see in here in our current day. Rather than listening to others, more and more we hear what we think they have said, and react to it. Don't do that. Don't lash out. Don't blast people. Recently, there was, a, there was, a, there, there was an episode of um, this that occurred. Uh, uh, a woman named, a World Magazine um, contributor. I don't know if she's a regular author, but World Magazine. Uh, a woman named Gay Clark. And she wrote an article that's entitled, When God Sends Your Daughter, When God Sends Your White Daughter a Black Husband. When God sends your white daughter a black husband. Here's how it begins. For years I prayed for a young man I had yet to meet, my daughter's husband. I asked the Lord to make him godly, kind, a great dad, and a good provider. I was proud of a wish list void of unrealistic expectations. After all, I knew not to ask for a college football quarterback who loved the puppies, majored in nuclear rocket science, and wanted to take his expertise to the mission field. <laughs> I was an open-minded mom, but God called my bluff. This white 53-year-old mother didn't, hadn't counted on God sending an African-American with dreads named Glenn to catch that. So she was shocked. And I, in the article which goes on, I, I thought she did a very good job of sharing her struggle and sharing her journey and in, in in, in coming to appreciate and accept uh, Glenn, who became her, as you saw the pictures there, became uh, her son-in-law. Um, and she had some very helpful advice for, for white mothers like her, who, might, who she knew would struggle with th this beginning to happen more and more in our society. And, she, and again, she's a believer. In fact, that's a PCA pastor there. It was a PCA church where they were married. So, um, she gave eight points of advice. And here was the first point of advice, which drew me to this, this article. All ethnicities are made in the image of God. They have one ancestor and can trace their roots to the same parents, Adam and Eve. As, as you pray for your daughter, get advice to others, to choose well, pray for your eyes to see clearly. Glenn moved from being a black man to a beloved son. When I saw his true identity 
as an image bearer of God, a brother in Christ, and a fellow heir to God's promise. Okay. She saw his Christian identity and saw that as primary, not these, these secondary issues of life, which are important and give us more uniqueness, but primarily, she said, I want my daughter to marry a godly Christian man, and she's found one, praise God. Well, you would think that article was received well. Well, those on the extreme right began to give death threats. Those on the extreme left, and Christians even, began to question and say that she had, she had objectified her Glenn. And, and, and so she got it from both sides. And so the article was taken down. And, and I, I hope she still continues to, to trust God because she was in a, in a firestorm for, for several weeks. But there's a lot of hypersensitivity. And look, folks, if we can't talk honestly about where we are, we're all in trouble when it comes to this thing about race. We got to speak the truth in love. We have to love one another as God has called us to do. The second thing in our passage is, is, is we humbly bear fruit because we're chosen of God. We're the chosen of God. You didn't choose me. I chose you, appointed you. We were previously, we're, we're unbelievers, we're pagans, we're in the world, we're outside the covenant of God. That's who we all were, and then we were chosen. We were chosen. Ephesians chapter 4, he describes that. Uh, you no longer walk as Gentiles in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of heart. He's describing our life before we come to Christ. Callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's our identity crisis. That's who we are before we receive the gospel. Ephesians 1 talks about the idea of being chosen, of being called out by God. Another verse is 1 Peter chapter 2. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim, there's a purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We heard the passage from Deuteronomy as God talked to the, the, the children of Israel, that they were loved by him. He chose them because he loved them. That's why he chose them. They weren't anything special. They weren't anything better than the other nations. It was not because they were more in number. He chose them because he loved them. And that's the same thing true of us, you see. It's the same thing true of us. Like the children of Israel, there's nothing in us that's caused us to, to save us. He decided to lavish his love upon us. The implications is simply this. Uh, we're, called, we're called his chosen ones, according to the text, as people who by the Spirit are abiding in him to humbly go and bear fruit. Go and bear fruit in a world that's disconnected from him, that's still not believing. As people born in God's world, we're all, in one sense, servants who have to give an account of how we've lived. And Jesus told several parables about servanthood and responsibilities and, and being uh, evaluated. The special calling, the first, particularly to these apostles here in the upper room, there's a, there's a particular special calling that, that, that he is talking about. Um, a very particular sense. They're being called to the special task in the kingdom of God, as the, those who would lay the foundation. In one sense, they have, the, they have the double call, a call to salvation and a call to special service. They, they said yes to the gospel, they're called to be specially ordained apostles, commissioned by Jesus to proclaim to the world, to represent him 
They, they, not everybody has a special call like that, but all of us have that call to salvation, don't we? All of us have that call not just to salvation, but a call to, to what we call Christian vocation, to, 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 to make a difference in the world, to bear fruit in the world. It may not be the fruit of church planting or of bringing people to Christ, although we're to be part of those kind of movements, yes. But even we don't have a sense of being called to the full-time ministry there's a calling on our lives to be part of the kingdom because kingdom expansion is not just people coming to know Jesus Christ. It's more than that. It's the Reformation doctrine of vocation. It's a wonderful truth. All work is potentially kingdom work. One big part of what God's doing to restore all things in a cursed, Adamic world. Fruitful labor is not only seeing people come into the kingdom, to many of us, to all of us in the room who know Christ, we have, we're, we're servants in the kingdom and we're to be fruitful. I don't want us to view this calling as, to ministry as wrong because the calling to ministry is a special calling, but it's very clear that most believers won't have that call. These 11 men that night did. They had a special calling in their lives. Jesus talking about that call to go and plant churches and, and to spread the gospel. But there is this particular call that all believers have. We're called to serve God in the highways and the byways of life, the marketplace, the office, the schoolroom, the home, the factory, the retail store, the neighborhood, to be fruitful, to have impact, to make a difference in people's lives. But again, Jesus, there's a special call in these men's lives. He's preparing them for the task of leading a movement throughout the world. The attitude, those who are chosen sometimes have wrong attitudes. Those who are chosen need to serve with the right attitude. And there's two attitudes he talks about that I think are here. One is the attitude of humility. You've been chosen. Because you've been chosen, it should not lead to pride. It should lead to humility. Because we weren't chosen because of anything in us. We were chosen because he decided to choose us. Nothing in us qualifies us, prepares us for the task God gives us. We just obey, and we follow as he calls us to, humbly. But the other attitude is an attitude of confidence. Confidence. We, 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 no, we're not qualified or able in our own strength to, to, to do what needs to be done, but he enables us by the Spirit. Part of the calling and the choosing is the empowering. So again, whether we're in full-time ministry serving God or whether we're, we're fruitfully serving in, in a vocational service somewhere else, we have the confidence that God will use us as agents in the kingdom, as, as agents in this world, to bring people to, to, to blessing and to fruitfulness and to flourishing. We're friends of God. We're friends of God. We're chosen by God. The last thing, very quickly, is that we, we, we can, we're children of God. And because we're children of God, we can pray with confidence. We can pray with great confidence. We, again, we were previously we were God's enemy. We were... Friends, we were children of Satan. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were following the prince of the power of the air. That's, that's the enemy, evil one. John chapter 8, the, the, those religious men thought they were, that Abraham was their father, God was their father, and Jesus said, uh-uh, your father's the devil. I mean, wow, what's that? Until we come to Christ. When we come to Christ, something happens. John 1 says, when we believe, we become children of God. We are born again. We're born from above. There's a new birth that takes place. We're called to be people who pray to our Father. We're children of God now. We pray for the interests of, in our own lives and interests of, of our world. 
that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. God is Father. Father. That's, the title still means something, I hope. Many have issues with fathers. Jesus talked about the fact that fathers on earth are not, they have problems. Matthew chapter 7, he talks about the, the imperfection of fathers, and yet he says, pray to Father. God is our Father. In the Old Testament, even, there was the understanding that God is Father. Isaiah chapter 64, very obscure verse. It says, now, O Lord, Isaiah says, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you're the, our potter. We're all the work of your hand. Many, know, many remember that part about the potter and the clay, but they forget about the part that he said, you're our Father. Even in the Old Testament, there's this idea that, that God is Father. We're the children of God. Abba, the Aramaic word, daddy, the word of intimacy for fathers, for dads. And in one sense, it's really absurd, isn't it? It's incredible. It's this familiarity that we, that we can have with God, this intimacy. You know, the, 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 the Islamic faith uh, can't deal with that concept. The idea of intimacy with God, of knowing God personally, they, that, that, that doesn't compute. Allah is powerful, almighty, high, but unapproachable. He's a great judge, but he's unapproachable. The idea of intimacy with God, that's absurd, that mindset, that worldview. Jesus blasted through that idea, though. God's Father. When you pray, say, Father, Abba. Deuteronomy chapter 14, even here in the Old Testament, it says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. God. It's a personal God. Access to the Father. If you have access to the Father, your Father's the king, you're a prince, you're a princess. That's who you are. That's who you are. It's a prince. The prince has access to the king or queen. We have access to our God. That's our identity. It's a very famous picture uh, in history of President John Kennedy back in the 60s and his son, John Kennedy Jr., in the Oval Office, the powerful Oval Office, the most powerful spot in the universe probably, apart from God's spot. And, and there's his son. He's, working, he's up there working, and his sons, they're playing. He, has, he had access anytime to its dad's powerful place. The picture became very famous. The son in the Oval Office. We have that kind of access. That's the kind of access we have to the throne of God. Hebrews, says, Hebrews 4 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Then let us with confidence, with boldness, Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We can approach our Father who is King in the same way as John Kennedy Jr. can with his father. If you ever get an email from me, you notice at the end I have my name, my title as co-pastor, and the face website and then the last thing I have is John 15, 16, which is our verse here. John 15, 16. That's a very important verse uh, for us. Um, in, in 1981, when, when, when Tara and I were, got, we got married, uh, I was in campus ministry, and, and I, had, I was not ordained yet. I, I wasn't even, I was thinking about going to seminary. I didn't know, I, you know, I didn't know what God, what God had for me. Um, we just, that verse, you know, I was in ministry, we wanted to be fruitful, we wanted to be fruitful in our lives, and, 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 and serving God, we do that, and we said, that's a great verse, and so we put that verse 
address right in our reading reader. It's right here. You can't read it because it's on the inside. But it says John 15, 16. It's right here. Right here. I can't get it off. Which is good. But, but there was a, we had a sense that God was going to somehow, if we would be faithful, he would use us in ministry. It was 35 years ago. And we're still praying that God would use us in ministry, that God would help us to be fruitful in ministry. Because we, we didn't know what, what God had for us in the years to come, what he's had. But we knew this. We knew this. We were friends of God. We were chosen by God. We were children of God. And God wanted to bear fruit through our lives. And by God's grace, I don't know where you are in your life. Maybe you're on the early side of life. Maybe on the middle side of life. Maybe you're like us on the other side of life, the downside. You're on the other side of the mountain. Whatever you are, what is your identity? What is your, have you solved that identity crisis? Are you in Christ? Is that the primary thing in your heart? And is that identity that you have uh, causing uh, something to flow from your life that bears fruit, fruit to the kingdom, fruit that will abide? We want to be the kind of church that's not just being blessed, here in the city, uh, here in our church, but blessed in the city. We want to bless others. We want to make disciples in the city and around the world. We want to be that kind of a church. It begins as we all personally know who we are and abide in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, many people struggle with identity in many different ways. We're reminded that because of the fall, because of what Adam did and, and our being in Adam, we, we struggle. Yet thank you that because of what you've done on the cross, that struggle can end, that struggle can cease, and we can have peace with you. We can experience the blessing and joy of knowing who we are. And as we know who we are, we can then joyfully serve, joyfully love, joyfully bear fruit in this world. Lord, make this real to each one of us, Lord, as we go from here today. I pray for anyone who's here, Lord, who's, who's still having the crisis because they ha their identity hasn't been changed by Jesus. Lord, may they not rest until they know that Jesus is not just uh, 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 one who came years ago, but he came for a purpose, to die for their sins, that they might have freedom, might know who they are. Bless this word in your name. Amen.